SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. On the viewpoint.
2108. Good evening, South Africa. This is still The Viewpoint. My name is Songa Zamabekwa. Thank you so much for joining us. We are now going to be in conversation talking about fraud and corruption with Monsieur Yaku de Yaha, who's the CEO of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, that's ACFE, together with Mr. Gavin Stansfield, who's a director at newly established law firm, Atlas of Stansfields. Gavin is based in Cape Town, of course, and we're going to be talking about fraud and corruption with a particular bias and focus in the workplace. Let's get on with that conversation right after this. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Turning conventional wisdom on its head. on SAFM. The 12th annual ACFE Africa Fraud Conference is hosted by the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, South Africa Chapter. It is recognized as the largest anti-fraud event in Africa and the second largest in the world. This event brings together more than 1,000 anti-fraud professionals and more from more than 20 countries, all with a shared and single desire to gain leading-edge knowledge in terms of curbing fraud and corruption. Across Africa, it is widespread despite the activities of governments and other regulatory bodies to stem it. It has become prevalent in recent years mainly because, mainly because of deterrence to such activities are not fully applied the socio-cultural factor must also be considered where corrupt persons are praised and no questions are asked as to the source of their wealth furthermore there's also reluctance of becoming a whistleblower anyone who dares to raise a comment on the sudden wealth attained by these individuals well a permanent solution is found for those persons mr yaku de yaku good evening Let's talk about fraud and corruption, the pandemic that we are now seized with, which in many respects is one of the great threats from a South Africa perspective, certainly, of our constitutional democracy. You're right. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a concern that we all have. I mean, there's no newspaper that goes out anymore without the front page or the first couple of pages dealing mm. with fraud um, and, and corruption specifically. Why do we get to that point where it is such a pandemic, it is so prevalent, it is so rife, and yet at least the legal instruments are there ostensibly to curb the direction in which public service as well as private service is moving? Well, let's have a look a little bit about the statistics that we've compiled in our report to the nation. Now, the report to the nation is compiled by individuals uh, over the world we has got uh, the international tendency of, of countries in uh, what's happening in various countries. And then we also have a specific report dealing with sub-Saharan Africa, which also talks to the figures that was released by Transparency International. Now, if you read the reports, you will see that Transparency International is quite um, clear in saying that if you want to operate within sub-Saharan Africa, you need to be 57% corrupt. Which is a shocking figure. It means that more than half of the people that we do business with is corrupt. Now, in, in, in Southern Africa, we or South Africa, we we struggle in in getting. Um, I, my personal opinion, um, people that want to do the right thing because of our current morals and values. Everything that we do um, relates to what is right and what is wrong. And, and people um, nowadays motivate doing the wrong thing as being right and they're entitled. So the entitlement factor is also a concern for us. Now, 
Talking about fraud um, based data, we talk about the fraud triangle, the reason why people would commit fraud. Um, to answer your question, uh, there's three three pillars that rest on, on why people commit fraud. The one is um, motive, which relates to need or greed. Um, and I'll explain that quickly to you. And then there is uh, having the opportunity. And then lastly, uh, rationalization. Now, if, if a person, for instance, sits within an organization and there is no segregation of duties or separation of duties, then they've got the opportunity to commit fraud. Um, but it being one of the pillars, people won't just go and, and commit fraud just because they've got an opportunity. There needs to be a, motivator, a motivating factor. So either agree they want to live uh, above the means, be like the Joneses, or there's this desperate need. Uh, someone is ill and they need to pay for something and they don't have the money, now they push into a certain direction. Mm. And then they rationalize by saying that I'm, I'm going to put the money back uh, where, where there's a need, I'll, I'll repay it, or no one will know, mm. I'll, I'll give it back. And then when it's greed, um, I'm entitled to it. Um, everyone else is taking it. Uh, why, why not me? So that's that's a concern we've got. We also deal with if if you can if we categorize people in in, in South Africa, there's a 70 20 10 principle that applies. So 10% of the people will always do the wrong thing, and then you've got 20% of the people that will always do the right thing, and then we sit with 70% of people, which as you can see with the with the percentage is the majority falls within this category where they can go either way. So the, the question is, um, what will influence you to do the right thing to become part of the 20%? And that's, again, coming back to your morals and values, something mm-hmm. that we lack in South Africa um, in having. Let me ask you to just hold it right there because I do want to bring in one of our co-guests on the line calling from Cape Town, Mr. Gavin Stansfield, who's the director of newly established law firm, Mkaitlis or Stansfield. Gavin, let's talk to the public sector. I think this is where a lot of your work has come through. Not that you haven't done any work in the private sector. In fact, the opposite might even be true. But to the extent that we have to talk about the public sector because at least that's where everybody has franchise. Not to say that there isn't any franchise within the public in the private sector. But when you talk about, for instance, Yaku talks about motive, opportunity, Opportunity and rationalization as the triangle. When you've got the systems there from the Municipal Structures Act, from the Municipal Systems Act, you have the PFMA, you have the MFMA, you have the Protected Disclosures Act, you've got the constitutional framework which should give guidance. Why is the outlook in the public sector the way that it is such that every newspaper that you open deals with corruption in the public sector? We're dealing for now, for instance, with state capture. How do we get the framework that we have, notwithstanding the legal regulations that are in place? Oops. Gavin, are you there? Yes, sorry, I, I was cut off earlier, so I've, I've missed much of the conversation. I apologize. No worries. Um, I think I just want to rephrase the question because I think this is where your expertise, certainly as a labor attorney by and large, comes in, as well as an administrative attorney coming through. In the public sector, and I'm not necessarily saying it doesn't exist in the private sector, but because the majority of us have, or well, everybody 
has a franchise and sort of a stake in the public sector. Notwithstanding the many rules and regulations, the acts from the Constitution to the Municipal Systems Act, the Structures Act, the MFMA, Protected Disclosures Act, all of these instruments that are there to design to protect the workplace from the high levels of fraud and corruption that are taking place, which are best demonstrated by the audit outcomes, which for the most part in the country are almost adverse. Why do we have this outlook, notwithstanding the framework that is there to take care of this? So, Gezo, one must first start by looking at the prevalence of supply chain management and procurement within local, provincial, provincial and national governments. Um, it's, it's, you know, the, all of the frameworks that you're talking about are there to make sure that stuff like procurement and supply chain management is highly regulated is transparent and ultimately goes to the best bidder. Uh, and and that's, that's ultimately what this legislation is trying to achieve. But unfortunately, within, within the very notion of procurement, is you're talking about um, generally very large sums of money. I mean, the, certainly the, the local government and the national government budgets that are being, um, you know, that are being worked with are generally you know, substantial sums of money mm. that, um, that, that public uh, entities local government, uh, provincial and national government in particular, have at their disposal. And when it comes to the procurement of goods, uh, you know, the temptation is just always there to, you know, to, to favor nepotism, cronyism, uh, and, and to circumvent in order to profit. Uh, so, so even though the framework is there, I think once, when one looks at the numbers and one looks at the prevalence of procurement within South Africa, this is a, it, it's a hotbed. It's, it's right. For, um, for fraud, corruption, and, and ultimately individuals pursuing their own riches. But on that, Gavin, and, and we might have to cut the conversation short quickly for an ad break at 20 past, the procurement framework, if anything, is there to give us the democracy that is cried out for in the Constitution, using public funds to meet services and to buy goods such that you and I can better engage each other whilst meeting in the public spaces. Now, why then is this not appreciated by those in law enforcement, those at a political level, and those especially at contracting authority level because we are infinitely bound by the by the constitutional framework to say that we have to move as part and is consistent with the transformative justice project of the constitution. Why then is that missing? Because it's clearly very susceptible to the person. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, that's the point. It's temptation. Legislation is only, is only, uh, is only as good as the extent to which it's upheld. And, I mean, you know, even within legislation, there are there are ways of circumventing open tender processes. There are negotiated tenders. There are, you know, there are there are deviated uh, uh, processes where, you know, those those accounting authorities uh, and and people in control of public purses they ultimately have the discretion in terms of even the legislation to pursue negotiated tenders, to pursue to pursue deviations, uh, and and to appoint um, service providers, which on a straightforward application of the procurement legislation would not be appointed. And so the, the potential is there. Um, people are, are exploiting it. And as I said, it's, it's the, you know, with the numbers involved and the extent to which you can do this, as long as you have someone on the other side who's prepared to participate and you have two willing parties um, mm-hmm. who are, who are uh, in, in uh, um, cooperating with each other, um, you know, funds can flow. 
and the, the extent to which this can be covered up as well under the guise of mm. legitimate or transparent tender processes, procurement processes, well, you know, that's obviously being exploited as well. Uh, and, and unfortunately, you know, the morality in terms of this in, in, in the country in which we live in um, is, is fairly low in, in many respects, unfortunately, and it's leading to this, this the, you know, the high, uh, um, uh, a high tendency for, for people ultimately just to steal. All right. We're in conversation for those who've just joined this conversation with Mr. Gavin Stansfield, whose voice you've just heard directed at this or Stansfield Incorporated in Cape Town, but with a national footprint, as well as Mr. Yaku Diyaha, CEO of Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. We're talking about fraud and corruption in the workplace. We're talking about the 12th annual ACFE, that's the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners Conference coming up soon very quickly. If you wish to contribute in any way in this conversation, the number is open 0891104207. Ask these guys. They are the best in the business. They're talking about fraud, talking about corruption, talking about employment-related matters in this enterprise that is fraud and corruption, especially in the public sector, but certainly in the private sector as well. We're taking your calls. It's 20 past. It's time for a quick ad break before we continue with Yaku and Gavin. This September, we celebrate National Book Week and World Literacy Day under the theme of Literacy in Digital World. SABC Education launches Ifunza, an online reading campaign. The SABC Education eStore is an online catalogue with over 46,000 titles ranging from fiction, non-fiction, curriculum and non-curriculum, and free e-books. Visit the SABC Education website for more details on Ifunza. SABC Education, enriching minds, enriching lives. And for those who have just joined, we're in conversation with Mr. Gavin Stansfield and Mr. Yaku Diyaka of Stansfield, um, Stansfield in and Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, respectively. Yaku, let's talk about what Gavin has talked about. I mean, he was largely appealing to how the 10% in the organization and to an extent the 70% in the organization now understand the framework within which they operate. They identify the loopholes. They see where their opportunity is in that triangle that you spoke to and about. And, of course, we know what the motive is in the most sense of what Gavin was talking about. It's never a need, always about greed. And even if there is a need, that is not how you get to meet that need. And, of course, they rationalize it because Gavin spoke about there are people who are part of this network. There are political protections. There's somebody outside the organization who's also willing to participate. And there are those inside the organization who are going to create the necessary paperwork, which is going to be a smokescreen for the criminality, the fraud and corruption that is actually taking place. How do we address this? I, I also am glad you give me an opportunity. I uh, want to point out that when we talk about tenders and, and government fraud, um, it takes you to tango. So is it really government that's corrupt or is it the private sector that works together with government um, that is corrupt? So one needs to be careful and, and just pointing out the public sector the whole time. Um, in, in being the, the filter. Yeah, no, it's, sure. it's, it's two parties sure. that get involved with this. So that being said, if one never look at, at, at you asked about legislation, internal policies, procedures, most of the organizations got the, the necessary in place. And you're quite right. The legislation is there. Um, the, the question one needs to ask is, why do we still find um, uh, corruption within, within organizations or fraud in general? within organizations because of uh, organizations allowing that the policies and procedures um, being not followed. Um, the rules be overruled um, and certain individuals having the ability to decide that they don't want to follow the, the 
policies that's in place. So that, number one, is concerned. Most of the fraud actually occurs because of this. The second to that is um, having the necessary policing in place. So if you go and have a look again at the figures of how do we detect fraud? Well, the number one mechanism still um, internationally and in Sub-Saharan Africa is through tip-offs. Um, and if you look at tip-offs, who provides most tips? Uh, 50%, actually it's 56% of those 40% that's in Sub-Saharan Africa comes from employees. The concern one's got is, are they protected, number one? And do we really train our staff members on, on how to uh, come forward with information, when to come forward with information, and having um, then the ability to share information freely, knowing that they are protected? That is um, the question. Yes. Sorry, let me go through to Gavin. Sorry, I beg your pardon, Yako. And, and Gavin has to go. You and I will continue the conversation. I just wish to engage Gavin on this one specifically speaking, on the context of protected disclosures, what Yaku's last point was, how valuable employees actually are for the purposes of tip-offs. But what I wish to lament, and this is what I want you to engage me, the, the the engagement an employee has with oneself, is it worth it, is it not worth it? We have seen and we continue to see persons who are assets, if you like, to the public sector coming forward with information, not necessarily receiving the kinds of protections that are necessary in reporting fraud and corruption in the procurement space against powerful politicians or bureaucrats who risk it all, not only their jobs, but their lives. South Africa doesn't have an environment whereby these persons are adequately protected. The question has to then be, in the light especially of what we know, why is that the case? You're asking me, Fongeza? Yes, Gavin. Yes, please. Together, yeah, look, let's just start with the legislation. Right? You mentioned the Protected Disclosures Act, and, and really the purpose of the Protected Disclosures Act, it's, it's a piece of workplace legislation, as you pointed out. Really the purpose is, is to prevent any employer from subjecting any of their employees to what's known as an occupational detriment, broadly defined as any form of disciplinary action, suspension, dismissal, you name it. Uh, demotion, yeah. it's, it's broadly defined as an occupational detriment. So mm. the framework is there. If I make a, if I make a protected disclosure, and there's, there's obviously there's, there's certain uh, criteria that you have to meet in terms of how you make that disclosure, to whom, uh, and also the nature of the information that you're disclosing. But if you, if you meet the criteria, sure. the idea is, is that your employer, there's no backlash, your employer cannot take any form of action against you on account of your having made the disclosure. Now, that's all good and well, but as you point out, uh, many people will be saying, well, where is the guarantee? Uh, you know, do I have to go to court to enforce my rights? And that's just an occupational detriment, as you, as you correctly point out together. What about uh, life-threatening situations where, um, forget about occupational detriment, mm-hmm. where, where actually my, my life or the life of my family may be, may be threatened or I may be intimidated? So, so these are some of the challenges. But, you know, just how the courts are dealing with it, I mean, the... I suppose the, the good news is that there's really two things that, that come to the fore here. The first one is, and I'm sure Yaku would agree with this, the purpose of fraud hotlines, whistleblowing hotlines, and the importance of anonymity. It is an incredibly important mechanism because all that you are doing, and, and this is where Yaku speaks of the word of tip-off, you know, if, if you have an effective mechanism in place in the workplace for reporting this on an anonymous basis, that can be very powerful and very effective because all you are doing 
and provided, of course, the person who is receiving that complaint takes it seriously and it follows proper channels in terms of mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, um, instigating an investigation, you know, commencing an investigation, and people, you know, you ultimately you're, you're pointing you're pointing the investigator to to where they should start looking, and that can be a very powerful mechanism. That you know, so so you must have an effective hotline in place where people can have the guarantee of anonymity. And, and ultimately, that can serve as the commencement point uh, of an investigation. That's the one point. The second point is if, if it's not anonymous and if you are required to protect your rights against an employer, say, taking some form of prejudicial conduct against you, the way that the courts have dealt with this in interpreting protected disclosures is broadly. So they've dealt with it from a purpose of approach. And really, it's just a reasonable belief on the part of the employee at the time that the information that they were reporting does meet the nature of the, or the criteria, the definition of a protected disclosure, miscarriage of justice, any type of fraud, uh, a malpractice, corruption in the workplace. And, of course, you've made it in good faith mm-hmm. and you've made it through a proper channel. As long as you hold that reasonable belief that you were acting in good faith and you were acting on information which was credible, it doesn't have to subsequently transpire that that information was what you believed it to be. You know, often investigation, it, it can actually, uh, um, it can transpire that, that, that there was no, there was no corruption or no, you know, uh, um, uh, no fraud taking place. But as long as you held that reasonable belief, the courts are prepared to protect you insofar as the definition of a protected disclosure is concerned. That's, you know, that's the framework. That's what we operate in. But again, I'll come back to the real point and it's, the, the 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 power of anonymity in uh, in pointing investigators to where you believe there's smoke um, and obviously fire. Of course, let's talk to you now, um, Yaku. All of this is there. Why then? So, sorry, what? Prior, how should the employer prioritize? Let's say it's it's internal at this stage before it it, it is reported as a tip off externally. When something such as fraud or corruption is detected in the workplace, I mean, there are many ways to enforce the rights. You can go the civil procedure route just to recover your losses. You could go the criminal route because ultimately it would have been a crime. Alternatively, you could just go gun for the affected person or the corrupt person within the organization. In terms of choosing which forum and platform to enforce the rights that obviously have been infringed, which way should an employer go to and what is the most effective, at least to the extent that your research and work has shown you? Well, um, go the civil route, number one, is going to cost you money. It's faster than the criminal route, but still, the the easiest way of recovering your losses um, would be through a criminal uh, a process that you start, and then you claim your um, the losses back through the criminal procedure. Um, but you want to get rid of the employee. The longer the person sits within your organization, the more the damage. So you will immediately start with a, with a labor procedure. Um, and I think Gavin will be able to, to talk a lot about that, where you sure. want to get the person suspended or get them out of the, the office as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. um, then have a disciplinary hearing, and then you can start with a criminal process after that. Unfortunately, mm. If you look at the, the cases that's, uh, that's reported criminally, it takes anything between five years and eight years in South Africa to successfully get to trial and to put a, 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 a to process a, sure. uh, 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 the case and, and to, to follow through the process 
in order to get a person convicted. So it's a very, very long and tedious process, costing you also a lot of money. Mm. That's something that, that a lot of organizations um, try to steer away because of reputational uh, um, risks. Of course, it's all made public, uh, yeah. Linked to the mm. organization, mm. which is one of the reasons why we've got the Corruption Act that was initiated. Preca, um, 2004. If, 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 if money is involved, more than 100,000, you must, as an organization, report this case. Um, if, if money is flowing, uh, more than 100,000, you also need to uh, report it to the FIC, mm-hmm. so, which, is, which is nice to have, pushing companies more in going forward, coming forward and, and, and reporting cases. Unfortunately, there's only a couple of organizations that really do report uh, fraudulent cases and, and standing up for it. And they also go public, so creating more public awareness, number one, but also public confidence in the organizations. Um, I can quickly think of F&B, who um, dished out a million rand for 2,500 uh, 2, rand to report the case through one of these type of um, orders or hotlines um, that, they, that they run. Coca-Cola who stood up against some of the directors to say this is what we do with people that commit fraud. So that creates more awareness within the organization. It also uh, tells the, the staff members that the company will act against anyone from the lowest level to the highest level. And money doesn't matter. Whether you steal 2,500 or a million rand, um, the company acts upon that. So to, in order to, to deal with fraudsters, you need to be decisive. So saying that a company is, has got zero tolerance, you need mm. to show that the company's got zero tolerance. All right. Questions and calls to Gavin Stansfield and Mr. Yaku Diyaka. Let's take KGM from Tata and Shandu from Durban. Of course, the rule is keep it short and sweet to the point so that Gavin and Yaku can respond. KGM. Good, good evening, uh, Sonia. Long time. How's it? I'm very well. Look, I'm going to make allegations and I'd like to hear your guests to respond to them. One, I think organizations like theirs, they're actually more like hiding behind the finger. They, they're not dealing with, with crime or corruption as, as they claim. I'll give you this one example. Government itself directed by the Constitution, has a lot of hideous crimes against the citizens. Here's one of them. So, yes, uh, which road do you know in South Africa that has an allowance for you to drive at more than 120 kilometers per hour? There isn't. None. How many vehicles do you know that are allowed by government to come into this country? Doesn't it make it unlawful or illegal or even a trap for government to allow cars that are technically illegal to be in the country and say, Songesh, this car can go at 220, 240, 280 kilometers per hour, but you are not allowed to drive at that speed. What do you call that? Here's the second last one. Uh, we, we, we know from evidence that the Constitutional Court, which is the custodian of the supreme law of the country, has issued a lot of uh, court orders which have not been implemented. I can give you examples of the previous one with President Zuma and many of them. Your guest can search and he'll find that. Why are organizations like his not making it their, their, their job as he claims to be? To make sure that those 
constitutional court judgments are enforced. And, and lastly, judges themselves, I'm sitting in a bench or we're sitting in a bench of, of, of the constitutional court or high court, whatever the case might be. We issue an order. We know we're not going to follow up because we say it's the job of the police, but aren't we the custodians of the law that the order that we've issued, it's now six months later, the complainant keeps on coming to court and saying, "My the order that you issued is, has not been implemented. Implemented by who? By the corrupt policeman that we are talking about. The corrupt policeman sure. is doing that because of what? All right. Just those, just those, those, those two, uh, those three. I'll appreciate it. Should they? Awesome. Thank you so much. I think the first two points I would r- like, please, for you, Yaku Diyaka, to respond to the last point in terms of implementing court orders and overseeing their implementation. I'll give it to you, Gavin. But that's. Let's take another one from Shandu in Durban before the gentlemen respond. Shandu. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you very much for taking your call and for the trouble. And um, my situation, my my. No, Shandu, we really cannot hear you. We, we, we're losing you. Can you try okay, again, please? How's this now? I was on, on speaker. Now, can you hear me? Yes, we can. I can. Sorry, I'm, I'm serious. Listen, um, in my case, this is the situation. I purchased fixed, fixed property from an, to asset, an asset agent, agent and um, it happened because... Uh, this asset agent introduced me to the ha- person who owns the property, and once I've made the pay- pay- payment, uh, suddenly I was told uh, that um, the property is uh, is not is not for sale, and um, my money was transferred by the owner back back to the asset agent, and asset agent uh, would not agree uh, um, uh, uh, to, to this. In fact, in fact, she denies this. Now, I went to the police station. The police tell me this is not a fraud. This is not a fraud. This is not a criminal case. And it's, it's a civil case. I must find an attorney and um, pursue a, a, a fraud or rather a civil matter. Isn't it fraud? Shouldn't the SAPS be taking the case as a fraud? All right. We're going to get Mr. Yakuti Yaka to respond. In fact, let me do it this way, Gavin, because you've only got one matter to respond to, implementing court orders and the role of judges in that regard. I want to give that to you. That was the last point made by KGM. Every else that, everything else that has been a question, that's for you to close off the segment, please, Yaku. Gavin, shoot, brother. Yeah, so, I mean, Sangeza, if, um, if it's a privately obtained court order, um, then the onus rests on the person uh, uh, in whose favour the court order was granted to pursue the enforcement of that order, and that's generally done through the courts through means of contempt of court proceedings. So in other words, if you have a court order in your favour and the party on the other side against whom it was granted is continues to default, uh, then you pursue that through contempt of court proceedings, and that is, of course, a, a criminal matter. Insofar as the broader... Um, the broader orders are concerned, such as enforcement of constitutional court orders. Again, it depends on the nature of the order, who the order is granted in favor of, and, and whose responsibility it is ultimately, which state body it is to enforce it. Now, we know that the, there's, just been, there's just been no political accountability in the, in the office, for example, of the NPA over all of the years. I mean, we know the problems mm. that South Africa mm. has experienced insofar as mm. just... A, a complete lack of accountability and, and effectiveness insofar as the office is the NPA. And I think the caller 
um, many of the of, of the examples which are cited are probably uh, probably fall to to enforcement bodies such as the NPA hmm. uh, in order to actually enforce many of these orders that have come through, especially the high level political uh, political type orders. Uh, and until such time as as we find you know greater effectiveness and proficiency in those offices, um, you know, and until such time as quite frankly those offices are are free of any form of political interference, number one, and secondly, resourced, importantly, to the extent that it is required in order to perform the job effectively. I guess we are going to continue to suffer from the frustration that we have in South Africa to see low levels of, uh, of as I said, accountability and action in awesome. terms of the enforcement of, of court orders at, uh, across all levels. Sure. Gavin, thank you so much for your contributions. We're going to let you go because we understand you've got pressing matters elsewhere, but thank you so much for your contributions. We will for sure continue conversations of the kind that we have had with you, certainly in time going forward. Yaku, stay on the line. We're going to have to take a quick ad break, otherwise the system is going to shut us. Before then, we will have the balance of the show all with you. Mr. Yaku Diocha, stay on the line, CEO, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. This September, we celebrate National Book Week and World Literacy Day under the theme of literacy in a digital world. SABC Education launches Ifunza, an online reading campaign. The SABC Education eStore is an online catalogue with over 46,000 titles ranging from fiction, non-fiction, curriculum, non-curriculum and free e-books. Visit the SABC Education website for more details on Ifunza. SABC Education, enriching minds, enriching lives. Good evening, South Africa. Final part of the show, The Viewpoint. Mr. Dioche, I don't have time. Shoot, you've got all the answers to those questions. I was unable to hear the last, uh, the last um, call, caller and, and what, what, they, what the question was. No problem. I'll repeat it for you, but just repeat for okay. the. I'll repeat it for you, but just respond to the one that you do know. So, Gavin already started with, with, with uh, responding to the first caller, and I, I concur in that mm. it's a lot to do with a political will in dealing with cases that um, either went through a court system or that was reported uh, to the NPA. Um, if, if one look at the willingness from political parties, most of the time when there's a, there's, when there's a court finding, it's the prosecutor that needs to follow up and, and make sure that adherence is done towards the, the finding by the court and that money is paid as was um, dictated. NPA needs to push this and make sure that this happens. Um, the, to say that yeah, we're hiding and we're assisting, um, that, that's a little bit harsh. As that, um, from the ACFE side, we are regulating entity that looks after our members and our members' conduct, that looks at whether they act professionally within the international guidelines set down uh, for professionals that operate in our environment. Similar to that of lawyers. Uh, that's why you've got the Law Society mm, mm, and mm. the uh, bar that looks after all your advocates. So we need to operate within those structures. And it's not as easy as just to go out there and say, listen, mm. we want to um, go after um, court rulings and make sure that, we, that they adhere to this. Our members go, they report cases, they testify to the cases, and then uh, once, once that's finalized, we depend on the NPA to follow through and, and make sure that there's adherence to it. So um, what can we do? And, and who is really then, then liable? What can we do as, as the public? Is we need to start asking questions. Um, what happened to um, cases that was reported and pulled back in the past on when looking at tender fraud cases? 
that was in, in, in the public, like in Polokwane. Um, the question is, why don't we as the public ask the questions? If you look at other countries like Uganda and, and, and Malawi, it's actually the, the citizens that stood up and start asking questions. That's why Uganda actually came forward to say, let's change the legislation and let's hold senior people like your accountant general and your auditor general accountable. If, if they issue a report, they need to follow up on these reports. Which is one of the reasons why we also change our legislation locally um, uh, for the auditor general, so giving them more teeth um, and the mandate now to go after those that's accountable and, and go and prosecute them. Awesome. Awesome. Mr. So Dioja? These things do happen. No, Mr. Dioja, let me, let me cut you short there, and I beg your pardon to have to do this, but do stay on the line because Shandu, the caller from Durban, did have a question. Unfortunately, there isn't enough time to respond to that on air, but stay on the line. We're going to put you through to him, and you can have that conversation for the purposes of at least satisfying that we do take his call seriously. Unfortunately, for want of time, we can't have that discussion on air. 2147, time for the SOPI.